And let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we come to your word now, we pray that in your kindness you would open your word up to us, that we might understand it. And would you open us up to your word, that we might be changed forever by it. And we pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. We may remember that we began this series back in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 with the Apostle John as he walks through this open door into heaven itself. And in this vision, Jesus pulls back the curtain to give us a glimpse for just a moment of God in all his regal splendor. It is a vision of God in glorious technicolor. And it's a vision of God that, as we saw, should humble us when we're proud. It's a vision that should strengthen us when we're weak. And it's a vision that should liberate us for a life of wholehearted worship. And that vision of God in all his splendor was followed up with a a vision of a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, which, as we saw, represents the unfolding nature of God's plans and purposes for this world. Yet only one was found who was worthy to unroll the scroll. And so the risen and victorious Jesus steps forward. And as each seal is removed, so we see further and deeper into God's plan of salvation and judgment. And then last week we moved on to the vision of the seven trumpets, which as we saw, are designed to wake up a sleeping world. They were meant to be noisy. The pictures and the images were meant to be graphic. We had warnings of ecological disasters with trumpets one to four. We had warnings of evil destruction with trumpet five. We had warnings of the enemy's design with trumpet six. But of course, we await the day when the seventh trumpet does sound and the Lord Jesus will descend from heaven in glory to destroy the destroyer. To rid this world of the evil one and to bring eternal deliverance to all who would put their trust in him. But until that day arrives, the question remains, what does it look like for the church to remain faithful in a hostile world? What does it look like to be a witnessing church today? In a day when those first six trumpets are already sounding. In a day when the seventh trumpet is imminent. And so what we're going to do this morning is rewind. We're jumping back to two chapters that we skipped over last week. Chapter 10 and the first half of chapter 11. And they include two visions that are intentionally placed between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. In chapter 10 we have a vision of an angel holding out his hand on which is a scroll that is open. It's a picture of a message that is being given. And then in chapter 11, we have a picture of these two witnesses who suffer incredibly for their faith. Here we have a picture of a message being shared and the consequences of committing to doing just that. So firstly, a message given. Have a look down at chapter 10. Verse 1, then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. 
Once again, John is painting a picture for us of something that is almost impossible to put into words. Here we have a mighty angel who's been dwelling in the presence of God, and as a result, he reflects many of those characteristics of God that we've been seeing as we're journeying through the book of Revelation. And as this angel comes down from heaven, so John spots something in his hand. Do you see it there in verse 2? He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. And in contrast to our last scroll that was sealed with seven seals, this one lies open for all to see. But we actually have to wait until verse 8 to discover the contents of the scroll. Have a look down, if you would, at verse 8 and what follows. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, Go, take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea, And on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I'd eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's the same pitch that we find in Ezekiel chapter 3. The message is sweet in the mouth because it is a sweet message of salvation. But as you begin to digest the message, it leaves a bitter feeling in your stomach because a message of salvation for some is actually a message of judgment for others. It is a bitter, sweet message. And that's been the story of Revelation so far, hasn't it? I don't know how you felt last week when we worked through the seven trumpets and we we saw these images and and pictures of, of evil destruction and what Satan is trying to do to this world. I don't know about you, but it left me with a bitter feeling in my stomach. And it left Han with tears in her eyes. Because it reminds us of people in our lives who are not yet safe from that destructive power. It's a bitter message in that sense. But of course, woven into that story, we find a sovereign God who is seated on his throne, who will deliver people from this messy world for eternal glory. It is a message of sweet salvation. You see, the salvation and the judgments go side by side. And that's why the scroll, when it is consumed, it is a bitter, sweet scroll. Because the gospel message that we've been given, the Christmas message we've been given, is a bittersweet message. Because it speaks of both salvation and judgment. But as well as a message being given in this vision, we also see a message that is hidden. Did you notice that in verse 4? Let me read to you from verse 2. He That's the angel planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, says John. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. 
I remember going on safari when I was about 15 in Kenya. It was us and a couple of the families, and we get one of these jeeps, and you drive around. You've got a driver. You've got a tour guide who's pointing out everything that you see. And when he thinks he's spotted something pretty spectacular, of course, the jeep stops, and everyone's scrambling around for their cameras to try and capture this moment of a lion maybe skulking through the undergrowth. And you see, that's what we've got here. The seven thunders speak. A booming voice from heaven. And it's like John scrambling around to find his pen. Quick, I've got to write this down. I've got to capture what the seven thunders are saying. But just as he's about to start to write, he hears a voice from heaven. Seal up what the seven thunders have said. And do not write it down. Seal it up. This is a hidden message. It's an interesting contrast, isn't it, to the rest of Revelation. You see, the book of Revelation is primarily an unveiling. That's what it means, revelation, a revealing, a disclosure of truth. But here, we find something that we're not meant to know. God is intentionally keeping it from us. Seal it up, he says, and hide it away. You see, there are some mysteries in this world that God wants to keep to himself. And we've got to trust him that that is for our good. As we read in Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things revealed, given, belong to us and our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. Our problem, I think, is we're often more interested in the things that have been kept from us than the good news of the gospel that is being given to us. The amount of ink that has been spilt on the book of Revelation by people trying to crack some supposedly secret code to determine the exact time and date and return of Jesus Christ. What a waste of time and energy. You see, the date of the return of Jesus Christ is one of those secret things that belongs to the Lord. We don't know that date and we're not meant to know that date. In fact, not even the Lord Jesus knows that date. Only the Father in heaven, Mark chapter 13. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. You see, we need to be humble enough to leave the secret things with the Lord. We're not God. We need to learn to be able to trust some of the mysteries of this life into his hands and trust in the message that he has clearly given to us because God has made the gospel wonderfully clear in the person and work of his son you see this we do know there are no more warnings to sound the next trumpet we hear will be the trumpet that announces the return of Jesus Christ who as we read at the end of verse 6 is coming soon there will be no more delay That God has made perfectly clear to us. And so the question that I think I'm left asking, actually it's two questions. And the first question is this. Are you ready? Are you ready for the day when the seventh trumpet sounds? Are you ready to stand before the risen Lord Jesus? Has your sin been forgiven? Have you trusted in the work of the Lord Jesus, his death and resurrection? Do you know the wonder of forgiveness in your own heart? Are you ready? 
this morning to meet Christ if he was to return today? And if you are, which I know so, so many of us are in this room, then here's our second question. Are we now living our lives? Are we speaking? Are we giving our lives to the one cause that other people will be ready to meet Jesus on that day when he returns as well? Because so many outside this room are not yet ready for that seventh trumpet. They've not yet trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus. In short, is your life being shaped by the return of Jesus Christ? Jim Packer once said, few of us, I think, live daily on the edge of eternity. It's where we are, every one of us. We're on the edge of eternity, there's no mistake in it. The question is, are we living like that? Are we living like the seventh trumpet may sound at any time, giving ourselves to the cause of Jesus Christ. Firstly, we have a message being given. And what a message it is. It's the message of the gospel. And it is perfectly clear. But secondly, we have a picture of a message being shared. Have a look down at chapter 11, verse 1, as we come to our second vision this morning. I was given a reed, says John, like a measuring rod, and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshippers. It's another picture from the book of Revelation where, where the, where from the book of Ezekiel, sorry, where the prophet is, is told to go and measure the new temple that is going to be built after the return from exile. But what was an architectural survey in Ezekiel's day becomes a church survey in our day. Or as it says at the end of verse one, it is the people of God who have been measured, those who worship there. What we have here is a picture of the rebuilding and restoration of God's people that comes through the preaching of the gospel. John is measuring a growing church that will one day be a multitude that is too great to count. But as you can see in verse 2, the church is a growing church. Day by day, the Lord is adding to his number those who are being saved, but it remains a church under attack, verse 2. But exclude the outer court, do not measure it, because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. As a gospel people, we are surrounded by enemies of the gospel. It's the reality. People who are seeking to trample the church into the ground. That is the context in which we are called to witness. As we learn in verse 3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. The sackcloth is a picture of repentance. That is the message we've been given. Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and trust in him. But what's the point of the timings there? You see them, verse 2 and 3. 42 months, 1,260 days, where they equate to the same length of time. They're both three and a half years. Here's the point. Proclamation and persecution will go hand in hand. Both will continue until the day Jesus returns. Proclamation must continue. People need Christ. But as proclamation continues, so so will persecution. They will go hand in hand for the same length of time. 
But the question remains, and it's the big question you're probably sat there asking, who are those two witnesses? Who do those two witnesses represent? Well, in verse 4, they're actually linked with a prophecy from Zechariah. It says in, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 4, they are the two olive trees. It's a little quote from a, a, from a vision in Zechariah chapter 4. And the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. These two olive trees are thought to be Joshua and Zerubbabel, who were central to the rebuilding of the temple after exile. And they lived and they served in a time of incredible opposition, but they remained totally faithful to what God had called them to. But in verse 6, it seems that these two witnesses are linked more closely with Elijah and Moses. I don't know whether you picked up on that when the reading was was said. Verse 6, first part, they have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they're prophesying. Just as Elijah prayed to God and God shut up the heavens. So there's something in these witnesses that reflect the work and the ministry of Elijah. But in the second part of verse 6, we read this. And notice the overtones from the work of Moses. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Just as Moses did in the time of the Exodus. Joshua, Zerubbabel, Elijah, Moses... But still people offer other options. Others have suggested that these two witnesses represent Jesus sending out his disciples in twos to do mission. Matthew chapter 9 and 10, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So which is it? Is it Joshua and Zerubbabel? Is it, is it Elijah and Moses? Is it the disciples in general? Well, I think it is a picture of all of them. Because together, these characters, these individuals, represent a people who've been faithful to God in significant times of compromise. They were loyal. Loyal to the Lord, whatever the personal cost for self. And that's exactly what we're called to be as a church today. That's how I have the reference to the lampstands. Did you see that there in verse 4? In Revelation chapter 1, the lampstands represent the church. Here is a picture of the witnessing church that is meant to stand on the truth of the gospel, loyalty to Christ, whatever the consequences for self. The message of Jesus is clear. Do not compromise the message. In a time when... The church in general, broadly speaking, is diluting the gospel, the truth, and therefore diluting the message of witness to the world. Jesus says, do not let that be you. Do not compromise like Elijah. Do not compromise like Moses. Do not compromise like Joshua and Zerubbabel. Do not compromise like those original disciples. Do not compromise on the truth that God has given to us, just like those heroes of faith that we read about in Hebrews chapter 11. And you see, it's also a cost that may well increase. Have a look down at verse 7 and onwards, chapter 11. Just verse 7. Now, when they'd finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. don't know what comes into your head when you see the word beast there. In chapter 11, verse 7, well, there's two beasts that come 
instinctively into my mind. There's the beast from ITV's The Chase for the quizzes in the room. And there's the beast from Beauty and the Beast. Those are the two most famous beasts I can think of. And although they've got a bit of a hard exterior, here's the reality. Inside, they're actually quite soft. They're actually quite soft-hearted characters. But you see, when it comes to the beast in the Bible, he's got no soft center at all. You see, the beast is part of Satan's entourage. And his aim is quite simple. It is to destroy the witness of the church. You see it there, don't you? To attack, to overpower, to kill, to destroy Christian witness. And in some respects, Satan will be successful. Their bodies, verse 8, will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was also crucified. Sodom, Egypt, and Jerusalem, three places where God's people were severely mistreated. And as we read in verse 10, the hatred of some towards the gospel is so great that they will actually celebrate publicly when these witnesses are dead do you see that in verse 10 the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because the two prophets had tormented those who live on earth at christmas we give gifts to remember the great gift that god has given to us of himself his son to be our savior here in a tragic reversal we have people giving gifts to celebrate the so-called demise of a witnessing church that's a message that leaves a bitter feeling in the stomach isn't it but as we've been seeing throughout the book of revelation this is a bitter sweet message because have a look at verse 11 and 12 but after the three and a half days the breath of life from god entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on you see the believer for the believer death will be immediately followed by resurrection Once again, in this vision, we borrow imagery from the book of Ezekiel, where there was a valley, and the valley was full of dry bones, people who were dead in their sin without God. They need waking up. They need being brought to life. And only when the wind of God's spirit breathes into this valley, breathes life into dead bones, they arise and stand on their feet as a vast army. And then wonderfully in verse 12, their ascension up to heaven follows the pattern of their Lord and Savior. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, just as Jesus was taken up into the very presence of God. And so what at first glance appears to be a defeat for these witnesses, for the witnessing church, is in fact the final piece of the salvation jigsaw as they go to be in the immediate presence of god as one commentator said we who belong to christ cannot but share in his victory so the martyr's death is not defeat but victory in union with christ and so as we draw things to a close here's the message i think of these couple 
of chapters. We're called to be a witnessing church. That's the call of Christ to his people today. We're called to be a witnessing church in a hostile world, in a world in which those first six trumpets are already sounding, in a world in which the seventh trumpet is imminent. Now, I don't know about you, that fills me with a sense of excitement at what God is doing, but a sense of fear as well. And so let me finish with three encouragements that I think are drawn from the uh, text this morning. Firstly, the time of trouble is short. As we learn in verse 14, Jesus is coming back soon. The seventh trumpet will soon sound. And on that day, all the troubles, all the pain, all the frustrations, however deep and painful and hard it might feel now, they will be swallowed up by the celebrations in the next. This life, friends, is just a finger click on the horizon of time. That's it. Whatever the pain, whatever the disappointment now is nothing in comparison to the eternal glory that God has brought for us in Christ. The time of trouble, however troubling, is so, so short. Secondly, God is still on his throne. It's the message that we've been hearing every single week. Whatever Satan throws at this church, he cannot thwart the purposes of God. A gospel witness may be snuffed out in one time. You may see a church demise in one village. But know this, God is building his kingdom in the next. And as we learn from the lips of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, on this rock, being the good confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overcome it. They won't. Because no one can thwart the purposes of God. Jesus reigns, Robbie, doesn't he? He reigns. The time of trouble is short. God is still on his throne. And then lastly, you are not on your own. Those who've been sealed by God are safe. And those who've been sealed have been sealed by the living God himself. His spirit comes to live and remain within our hearts. He takes up residence in the home of a believer's heart. And he will not leave your sight. He will not leave your heart. However troubling the times may be, Jesus will never leave his people. Never, ever. And he will take us safely all the way to heaven and to the day when the seventh trumpet sounds let me pray for us as we finish father in heaven we thank you for the bittersweet message of the gospel we thank you that it does warn us in love of judgment of life without christ but thank you that it also speaks of the sweet message of salvation of a god of such outrageous love that he would leave heaven to be born as a baby in this world, in the mess of Bethlehem, to walk in this world and to journey knowingly to the cross where he would defeat Satan and sin and from where he would rise gloriously to new life, to reign for all time in heaven. Thank you that the Lord Jesus has been once and thank you that he'll come again. Thank you that the seventh trumpet will sound and the evil in this world will be no more because the Lord Jesus will make all things new.
Father, how we pray for any in the room this morning who are not yet ready to meet Jesus. Would you move them to that place this morning? Would you work in their hearts by your spirit to help them see and savor all that Jesus has done for them? And Father, help us to be that witnessing church that is pictured here in these few chapters. Help us to be loyal to the Lord, whatever the personal cost for self. Help us to live our lives. Help us to speak in such a way that will enable others to be ready to meet the Lord Jesus on that final day. And so, Father, we need your help. We thank you that nothing can thwart the purposes of God. And we thank that in your kindness, you would so call us to be a part of your eternal kingdom shaping work. And so please help us to be that witnessing church to stand on the truth of the gospel that you've given to us as we see your church grow to become that multitude in heaven that is too great to count. And we pray all these things for your glory. Amen.